You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. And so the one that we're going to look at this weekend, it is another very difficult passage. Like the title of the sermon is Easy as Pie. That has nothing to do with the passage um, because it is not easy as pie. It's a very difficult text uh, where Jesus says some pretty hard things. So um, what I want to do, rather than read it all at once, I feel like it would, be, it would better serve us if we just kind of read it a few pieces at a time and then I'll make a few comments so that we can kind of guide along with what he's saying. So let's look at Luke 14. We'll read through it piece by piece. I'll make a few comments. We'll pray and then we'll jump into the sermon. First couple verses, Luke chapter 14, 25 and 26. It begins, now large crowds were traveling with him. Take note of that. Large crowds are with him. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. How about we just close the service now and we all feel enriched, right? Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus actually affirms we are to honor our mother and our father. Elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, we're taught to love our spouse and love our children. Jesus also tells us that actually he's come to give us abundant life and actually we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, which implies that on some level we are to love our lives and love ourselves. So how do you put all of that together with this? And what you need to know is that what Jesus is doing, and he does this quite a bit, is he's utilizing typical Jewish hyperbole. And the reason why you would use hyperbole is you would say something shocking. You would say something exaggerative, something that was deliberately disorienting in order to make a strong, emphatic point about something and to get it to stick with people and make it memorable. So here the point is just simply this. Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in the kingdom of God, what I'm coming to bring your allegiance and your devotion unto me must be so extreme, so exclusive, that by comparison, it makes your devotion to anything else look like the difference between love and hate. That's how extreme our allegiance to Christ must be. That, in fact, we are to have one single allegiance, and that is unto Christ, and there are no competitors no competing interests, not family, not your own life, nothing. If, in fact, we want to participate in the kingdom of God. Verse 27, he says, Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You need to know that in that culture, in that part of the world, in that time period, a cross was not a religious symbol at all. It wasn't certainly something that you would wear around your neck, a cross was just simply an execution device. The Romans would take rebels, insurrectionists, they would crucify them, not only for the physical component, the torturous component, but also um, 
to publicly shame the person. And one of the things they would often do is force the person to actually carry the cross to the execution site. We know that's exactly what would happen to Jesus later on. And so when Jesus is saying, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, the way the crowd would have heard it is this. They would have heard him say it like, if you want to be my disciple, be prepared to die a slow, painful, excruciating, shameful death. Verses 28 through 33. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Jesus is making this very plain. I'm telling you that you are to have no other allegiance but unto me, and you're going to have to give up everything. So therefore, think about it before you get into it. I want you to consider this first, ahead of time. In the same way that if you're going to build a tower or if you're going to build a house, you make sure you have the money to finish. Or if you're going to go to war, you're going to take inventory of how many soldiers you have and how much equipment you have. If you don't have enough equipment, you'll never take that kind of step. So in the same way, before you sign up to follow me, let's make sure you know what you're getting into and you're willing to give everything up. Now let's finish it with these last two verses, verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is useful neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. If you have ears to hear, then hear. The whole purpose of having salt is to be salty. What other purpose does salt have? So if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless, it's useless. So also Jesus is saying that the whole purpose for coming into the kingdom is this kind of radical discipleship, this singular allegiance, carrying the cross, giving up everything. So if those, Jesus is saying, so if those who profess to follow me, if you're not willing to engage in that kind of radical discipleship, what's even the point? Everything hangs on this. This tough stuff. Now, Luke 14, give you the context. Jesus here is now on his way to Jerusalem. He's nearing the end, and at this point in his ministry, he's already done most of his miracles and deliverances. He's become a household name in Israel. He's the most popular man in Israel. People from the north, south, east, and west have now left their homes to follow him to Jerusalem. Even beyond the borders of Israel, Jesus has become a household name, and the Jewish people are really excited about this Jesus because they're, they're hearing the things that he's doing, and there's a lot of chatter about this man being the Messiah, this figure that the prophets have foretold about hundreds of years ago, that God's going to raise up someone. He's going to be like a new Moses who's going to save us and deliver us from the oppression of these pagan overlords. 
So he's going to be sort of a new Moses, but he's also going to be sort of a new David because he's going to once again restore the kingdom and he's going to sit on the throne and be our king. And, and unlike David, he's going to rule and reign for all of eternity. And they're longing for this Messiah and they're pretty sure that Jesus is finally the one. And so they're following him to Jerusalem because it's in Jerusalem. They're expecting this is where the revolution's going to go down. This is where the seat of power is. This is where even Pontius Pilate is going to be during Passover. And that's the goal, to get there for Passover. And so they, they totally expect Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, usurp control of the temple, kick the Romans' butts, if I can say that, um, and take the throne and sit on the throne of Israel and usher in this kingdom that we've been looking forward to for hundreds of years. And so they're excited. There's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of energy, and they're, they're looking for Jesus to be the Messiah who's going to defeat their enemies. They're looking for Jesus to be the Messiah who's going to solve all of their political issues that they're constantly trying to loop him in on. They're looking for Jesus to be the Messiah who's going to restore their sovereign identity as a nation and advance their national interest. And he's going to make their lives a whole lot easier, a whole lot simpler. And they believe this sincerely because this is what they assumed God wanted for them. The way they thought was, well, well, God's the God of the Jewish people. We're the Jewish people. God wants to bless us. He wants to liberate us, restore our nation, solve all of our political problems because that's what's good for us. And what's good for Israel is good for God. God's on our side. And so... It looks like Jesus is going to be the Messiah, so we're behind him 100%. Yay, Jesus. Hooray, Jesus. Go, Jesus. Hosanna in the highest. And so he's walking towards Jerusalem. Get a picture of this. There's a multitude of cheerleaders exhilarated about this moment. And Jesus stops dead in his tracks, turns and faces the crowd and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I want all of you to know that if you don't hate your mom and dad, hate your spouse and hate your kids, I don't want you following me. Oh, and also, if you want to be my disciple, be prepared to die a slow, painful, excruciating, shameful death. And also, I'm going to have to have your complete allegiance, and you're going to have to give up everything to follow me. Great sales pitch. Jesus. This is the exact opposite of what conventional wisdom and common sense today would tell you to do. When you've got such a large crowd who's just in this enthusiastic frenzy, chanting your name, the way that you win friends and influence people is you capitulate to the crowd, you harness this energy, and you can channel it, and this is a force by which you can do something. And maybe have an even bigger crowd. This is, boy, it looks like God's doing something. This is exciting. Man, we can build something really big here. And Jesus does not seem moved or impressed by the size or the energy of the crowd. All Jesus cares about is obeying the call of the Father and inviting others on that call. And whether the crowd is large or small matters nothing to him. Whether the crowd is filled with energy and excitement or, or whether the crowd is as dull as they can be matters nothing to Jesus. All that matters is doing 
his father's will. And if that happens to produce great crowds, wonderful. Nothing wrong with having a large crowd. But if it, if it leaves you all alone, like it would eventually leave Jesus all alone, so be it. And if it causes the crowd to get really excited and enthusiastic, wonderful. Nothing wrong with having enthusiasm. But if it turns the crowd hostile against you, so be it. The only criteria that counts for Jesus is doing the will of his father. And so Jesus turns to this crowd. He lays all of his cards on the table. And he tells them, I want you to think about this before you follow me. And don't try to fit me into your box. In reality, you're going to have to completely reorient your lives and the way you think to fit into this kingdom box. I'm sorry to inform you because I'm not here to defeat your enemies. I'm actually here to invite you in on a new kingdom where you're actually going to learn to love your enemies. And I'm sorry to tell you, I'm not here to solve all of your political kingdom of the world issues. I'm actually here to invite you in a kingdom that is not from this world, that transcends all partisan bickering and issues. And I'm sorry to inform you, I'm not here to restore your nation and advance your national interests. I'm here to invite you to belong to a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom that transcends nations and transcends all nationalism. And I'm sorry to inform you, I'm not here to sweeten your life and make it nicer. In fact, if you start following me, it might make your life a whole lot more miserable. But if you participate in this kingdom and feast at this table, it'll give you a whole different perspective on your troubles. And no matter how miserable life gets, you'll have a deep abiding joy that's indescribable that nobody can take away from you that's full of glory. So if you're going to enter into this kingdom and follow me, you got to know that God's got to have your only allegiance. This is hard teaching. This is tough teaching. This is not popular teaching. Jesus is saying, I want you to think about this. Before you sign up, I want you to consider this. And what troubles me is I think to a large extent in the American evangelical church, we do the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing here. And we want to try to take the gospel and Jesus's invitation to be part of his kingdom. We want to take it and make it into something that's sellable, something attractive, something marketable, something that would appeal to people. And so sometimes as pastors and churches, the way that we think, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, is we think, boy, we better make this attractive because we're all competing with other churches, even though we're not. We're all on the same team, right? But we act like we're in some type of competition because, man, there's only so many sinners to go around. Like here in L.A. County, there's only 10 million of them, you know? And so we've got to find a way to make this appealing, make this attractive, make this something that's sellable so we can hook people in. We want to show them this is going to improve your lives. This is going to improve your marriage. This is going to prove all of these different things. And if we can just sell that to them, we'll, we'll get them hooked in. We'll, we'll get them to sign the bottom line, say a sinner's prayer. And boy, we can really build some momentum, build some enthusiasm, and build something large here. 
And to a large extent, we don't put all of our cards out onto the table. In fact, there's so many people who aren't even aware that there are cards to be put on the table, that there is actually a cost to following Jesus. According to Jesus, the only thing that matters is doing God's will. He was the walking, talking version of God's will getting done on earth as it is in heaven. So to be in the kingdom is to look like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to have one allegiance like Jesus did, to give up all like Jesus did, to carry your cross like Jesus did, to love others like Jesus did, to serve others like Jesus did, to care for the poor like Jesus did, to welcome the outcast like Jesus did, to liberate the oppressed like Jesus did, to bring wholeness to all who are ill like Jesus did, to love those who are judged by toxic religion like Jesus did. That's the kingdom. That's the saltiness. That's the criteria for success. And whether it produces a large crowd or a small crowd matters nothing. Whether it produces a lot of energy and excitement or whether it just sucks all of the excitement out of the room, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is doing the Father's will. So I want to show you, uh, you might be wondering, what in the world does this title have to do with this sermon? I want to show you a few diagrams that will help us to see what Jesus is doing. And, uh, and they're pies. I'm going to show you some pies. Anybody, anybody a pie fan? I'm a big pie fan. I'm a, I love coconut cream pie, just to let you know. I said that one time in my church in Louisiana. I got five coconut cream pies in one week. Um, but this first pie, this is, we'll call it pie number one. And this is what we would call life in the flesh. That's kind of a, a New Testament way of saying life apart from God. Even if I have beliefs about God and I have religious practices, I can still approach life and look at the world just the same as someone who is separated from God completely. So this is life in the, in the flesh. Paul might call it the pattern of this world. Um, it, it just means that it's the natural way that people tend to live in this fallen world. And so with life in the flesh, notice I have different obligations. I have different like aspects to my life. And I have to determine how to divide my time, my energy, my focus, my attention, my affection between all of these things. So, so I give one slice of the pie to my family, another slice of my pie to my job, to my small group, you know, even religious activities, to my, my, my civic activity, to my prayer life, to my church, and then also to my, my leisure time. So I kind of divide my pie up. But the, the key thing to notice about pie number one is that I'm at the center. I'm the owner of the pie. I'm the CEO. And I'm the one who calls the shots. And so because I'm at the center, everything revolves around self, around me. So that even when I hear the gospel, the way I receive it is, well, now I just need to add Jesus into my pie. I'll give Jesus a slice of the pie. And the reason I want to invite Jesus into the pie is because Jesus is sort of like pie sweetener. He'll sweeten the pie. He'll make all of these other pie slices taste even better. He'll improve all of these different aspects of my life. But just notice that what I'm doing in pie number one is I'm inviting Jesus into my pie rather than the other way around. So this is the first paradigm, pie number one, life in the flesh. But there is a totally different 
paradigm, and it's the one that Jesus is inviting this crowd into and what he's inviting us into. So here's pie number two. And with pie number two, this is life under the reign of God. And the key thing to notice is that Jesus owns the pie. He's the CEO. He's the owner of it. Now, it still has to be determined how much of my time and focus goes to these different activities, these different aspects of my life. Of course, you know, that doesn't disappear. But the key thing about it is that now Jesus owns the pie. I'm only the executor. You know, when you're the executor of an estate, you're really not making determinations. All you're doing is carrying out the will and the priorities of the owner as if you are them, you represent that person. And so Jesus owns the pie. Everything in the pie belongs to Jesus. My family belongs to Jesus. My job belongs to Jesus. My civic act, all of that belongs to Jesus. So it's not a matter of saying, well, I have one duty unto God, but I have another duty unto my family. No, you have one duty to God, which includes your family. And it's not a matter of saying, I have one duty to God, but I also have a duty to my job. No, you have one singular duty unto God, which includes your job. When you say yes to Jesus, what you're doing is you're, you're enthroning Jesus over everything so that all of these aspects are now under his domain with no competing interests. So also, this is where it might get a little controversial, it's not a matter of saying I have one obligation, one duty unto God, and I have another separate duty unto my country. That's a very common way of thinking. People speak of it as a dual allegiance. I have an allegiance to God, but I also have an allegiance to my country, and I've got to balance these two things. And I just want to tell you that's the exact wrong way to think about this. I don't know where you find any of that in the Bible. My entire allegiance is unto Christ, which may include duties towards my, my nation and civic duties, but the allegiance belongs to him. So Jesus tells me to submit to governing authorities. The New Testament under Christ's authority tells me to pray for my leaders. The New Testament tells me to pay my taxes and so forth. But I don't do any of that because I have some separate obligation to Caesar, to my nation. No, I do it because my one master, my one king tells me to do so. So that's why if government ever tells me to do something that contradicts my allegiance to Christ under God's authority, I am to humbly say, absolutely not. I cannot do this. You're going to have to kill me because my allegiance belongs to my king, Jesus. Does that make sense? And that includes every aspect of our life. See, that's a totally different paradigm. And so Jesus is trying to get this crowd to reframe the way they're thinking. He's trying to get us not to just tweak our pie a little bit. Here's what Jesus wants to do. Let's look at the last diagram. What Jesus wants to do is shift us, get us to make the shift from pie number one, life in the flesh, to live in this completely different reality, life under the reign of God. Now, that may not necessarily be like turning on a light switch for you. It's not necessarily like a one-time thing. I think there's a sense in which your entire life, you're going to be shifting gradually, 
right? It may start with a one-time decision, absolutely, a declaration, but, but actually getting your life to completely align with the reign of Jesus, sometimes that takes, actually it always takes a lot of time, okay? But, but it can look a little bit painful from the start because what you're doing when you're shifting from pie number one to pie number two is you're giving up control. You're actually giving everything up. You're dying to yourself, you're crucifying the flesh. And when you're, you're looking at it from a pie number one mentality, boy, that seems really, really, really unpleasant. But if you die to that flesh way of doing life and come under the reign of God, you're actually gonna discover a kind of life that you never otherwise would know. For example, when I hand over the reins to Jesus and I make him the CEO of the pie, he now owns it all and I surrender to him, I may legally own some things, but in reality, I'm learning to embrace the truth that ultimately God owns it all. I'm only managing his resources according to his priorities. I'm just the executor, but this stuff doesn't really belong to me. And the more I can embrace that, it gives you a certain freedom and a certain peace that you wouldn't otherwise have. So for example, when the stock market falls apart and I lose half my retirement in one day, if I understand the gospel and what it is to belong to the kingdom of God, I'm not gonna be freaking out like the rest of the nation. Why? Because reality is I've already lost it before I lost it. It wasn't even mine to lose. It all belongs to God. God just lets me manage it. So it becomes kind of an easy come, easy go thing. In fact, all of life now becomes easy come, easy go. Even death itself loses its sting because I recognize that I'm living in an eternal narrative. And that totally reframes all of my earthly, earthly troubles. Amen? So when, that's, when we die to that self-centered way of life, that, that pie number one way of doing life, now there's no more blockage to the Spirit of God infusing Christ-like character into our lives because we begin to now find a joy in serving, in giving for the sake of others, in sacrificing for the sake of others. What, what at one time might have looked repulsive, this idea of dying to yourself and crucifying your flesh, boy, that seems like something I wouldn't want to have any part of. But, but when you come under the reign of God and you begin to allow the kingdom of God to reframe your lens, you start to find a certain joy in self-sacrificial living. Not because you enjoy sacrificing for its own sake, but because you recognize that self-sacrificial living, dying to yourself, that's the pathway to true joy and true peace. And that's life the way it was meant to be lived. That's the way your life was meant to be lived. But you're not going to get there by tweaking the pie or reorganizing the pie. Jesus says, no, I want you to die. You're going to have to die to self. But death is the pathway to resurrection life. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.